Hey, this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus, no matter what you're going through today. You know, my good friend Paul Stippick brings this message about the practices of Jesus. It's his third one to talk about the practices of Jesus. And in this one, he answers the question, so what? If I practice the practices of Jesus, what difference does it really make? It's a really great message, and I'm glad you're listening today. Good morning. If you all are willing and able, please stand for the reading of Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, Standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exhausted. God, thank you for allowing us to be here this morning. I I pray that you would remove me from the stage and that everything I say and do would be quickly forgotten, but everything that you say and do through me would be quickly remembered and seep down into our souls and in our hearts and worm its way into us. God, that your truth would be made known. God, that you are an incredible God of love and that you are calling us to be a community of people living out the practices of Jesus so that lives around us can be changed. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for preparing our hearts and minds for what is going to be talked about and said. Amen. You guys can have a seat. For those of you who do not know me, my name is Paul Stippick, and man, it's super exciting to be back here with you. Um, I, I decided to do something a little bit crazy this morning. I said, you know what? I want to continue the topics that I started talking about back in October and November, and I realized that seems a little silly because some of you are like, Paul, I don't even remember what I had for breakfast. How can you expect to remember what you talked about months ago? And well, guess what? I realize that I'm pretty forgettable, so I am coming with a recap for you. We talked about some two very important things, though, when looking at the practices of Jesus. Before we did any of that, before we looked at these practices, I said, hey, we need to have this foundation, and this foundation is two parts. It's a foundation of who we are and a foundation of whose we are, and so for the very first point that we talked about for who we are was this. We are image bearers of the Trinity. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, the beginning part of that, and this is where God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit came when they were creating the world, and what they said is, hey, 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 Let's take a moment and let's make man, let's make women in our image. And so this means that we are image bearers of the Trinity. Every single person in this room bears the image of their creator. Every single person outside this room bears the image of their creator. No matter what they believe, no matter how they're acting, no matter what they're doing, they bear the image of their creator. The second thing that we talked about was this. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We looked at Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6. This is where this came from, where God is literally calling his people, these Christ, eventual Christ followers, say, hey, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
If you are a Christ follower, you are called to bring about God's right rule and reign and restore all things back to new. Everything from the very beginning of time, from the Genesis account, is all about a story for bringing all things back to new. And so God is calling you and me to be this kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the third thing we talked about for who we are is this. We are intentionally and purposely made by God, who is the creator of all things. We looked at Psalms 139, verses 13 through 18, and Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. In Psalms chapter 139, it's some of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible because it talks about how we are beautifully, wonderfully, fearfully made and knit together in our mother's womb. And it also says that there's thoughts that God has about us that if we understood them, if we really knew them, they would blow our mind with joy and with ecstasy. We wouldn't be able to know how to contain this. But it's not just one or two or three thoughts. It's thoughts about us that are so amazing that we can't comprehend it, that we would literally explode with joy. These thoughts outnumber the grains of sand in this world. In Genesis 1:31, after he's created man and woman, he says, it is very good. And so what does this mean? It means you are not a mistake. You are not a mistake. You're not a mistake. As you were being intimately woven in your mother's womb, and he was whispering these sweet and amazing thoughts over you, and before he pushed you out into this world and gave you the breath of life, he said, you are very good. But we live in this world that has been corrupted by sin, and so this foundation of who we are is easily shattered, is easily broken. And, and in fact, when I talked about this on that Sunday, I had revealed a mirror, and I said, hey, when you look at this mirror, what do you see? When you look at your reflection, what do you see? Do you see the truth about what God says about you, that you're perfect, that you are made amazingly well, that I didn't have a mistake when I created you, that you're smart, that you're wonderful? Or do you believe the lies of the enemy that you're carrying a few too many pounds, that you're, you're kind of an idiot, that no one likes you, that your marriage is crumbling and there's no way to fix it and you're not going to get that job, you're not going to get that opportunity because you're worthless? Do you believe the truth about what God says about you or do you believe the lies of the enemy? We talked about how this foundation of who we are is so easily cracked, so easily broken, so easily shaken, except we are called to build our foundation on something that is unshakable, that is unbreakable, that will never be moved, never be broken, and that is whose we are. It is, it is made on the foundation of Jesus and God and who they say they are. And so we looked at the first thing about whose we are, and that is this. God is merciful and gracious. We're going to skip past this slide and go to the next one for whose we are. This God is merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. This is the most quoted scripture in all of the Bible, both New and Old Testament. God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. His love extends to the thousandth generation. What this means is his love outpaces, outruns, and outloves our sin. Yes, our sin may last to the third and the fourth generation. And in fact, there's one for us and my family. It's this sin of anger. I see it in my dad. I see it in myself. And I see it now in my son. And we're praying our guts out and saying, Lord, break this generational curse. Break this, this sin of anger within us. And so every morning, it's, Lord, fill us with the fruit of your spirit. Fill my family with the fruit of your spirit. I don't want that anymore. But the thing I know and the thing I can trust is that God's love extends far beyond my sin and far beyond my anger and far beyond my errors. 
The second thing we looked at for whose we are is this. God is gentle and lowly. He is gentle and humble. We looked at Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, where Jesus is literally coming down and looking at the sinner, looking into his eyes and saying, hey, 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 put down your idols. Put down your burdens. Put down your yoke. Take on my yoke. Take on my burdens because it's easy. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to yourself. It's not the easiest way. We see a picture of Jesus running towards us, not running away from us. And him saying, I want to do life with you. Take on my burden and my yoke, for it is light and it is easy. The third thing we talked about for whose we are is this. God is love, and his love never, ever, 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 ever to infinity runs out. We took this from 1 John 4, 6, 4 verse 16 and 1 John 13 verse 1, where God, it's not a part of who he is. Love is not a part of who God is. Love is God. God is love. That is all of who he is and so much more. It is never ending. And in John chapter 13 verse 1, we saw this amazing thing where it says he loved us to the end. Well, what does that mean? And that's when we had a cross brought in front and put in front of this mirror. And I said, hey, if you're looking at yourself, if you're looking at your reflection and you're not seeing it in light of the cross, you're missing everything. If you don't see your life in light of the cross, we're missing everything. Because God sent his one and only son to be brutally slaughtered on a cross, not so that we could have a get-out-of-hell-free card, but so that he could come into our lives and heal us, so that we could live out the practices of Jesus in changing others' lives in our community. What does it mean to love us to the end? It means Jesus coming to the cross and loving us and giving his life for us. And so after we had this foundation, we talked about these, these biblical practices. The next week, we started looking at silence and solitude. And it's this amazing thing where Jesus would break away from all that he was doing. Even though his ministry was on this upward trajectory, he would break away and he would spend time with his heavenly father. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three in one. He didn't need to do this to grow his relationship. He did this so that we could see how we are supposed to live. Because God desires a relationship with us. He wants us to spend time with us. I want you all to understand something you become like the people you spend time with. So if you're not spending time with God, how in the world do you expect for you to become more and more like God? How do you expect to be more and more like Jesus if you're not spending time with him? We looked at this, this practice of silence and solitude and said it's not about you turning on some music and reading some scriptures and sitting in a seat and having a kumbaya experience. It's about you putting all distractions away. It's about you putting all time away and saying, God, this is your time. This is, this is your moment. God, I want you to help quiet my mind so that I can hear your truth that you've always been speaking to me but I've just put too much noise in my life to be able to hear it. And then we looked at this practice of fasting. It's something that's so important and was this weekly exercise for Jesus, but it's this practice that we in the West really don't know about or even really do, but it's this thing that is so important that Jesus started off his ministry with it with 40 days of fasting. And we talked about how incredibly important this is and some question like, why would I do this? Why would I give up nourishment? Why would I give up food? Why would I starve myself? It doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. And it's because it's God saying, hey, remember that time, money, food, all of that stuff, it's mine. It is not yours. I want you to give all of that to me. And fasting is aligning yourselves in this full body worship and saying, God, I, I don't know what else to do except to give you all of me and everything and be fully aligned with where you want me to be. Because in fasting, it draws us closer to the people that God wants us to be around, the poor, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the widow. 
It draws us closer to the people that he's wanting us to spend life with. And so fasting, we, we ended it with this one question, and it's a really good one because it allows you to know, are you fasting for the right reason? And the question is this, what are you fasting in response to? You're fasting, but in response to what? We don't fast to get a response. We fast in response to something. You don't fast in to get a response. You don't fast to get more money for the church. You don't fast to bring someone to Christ. You fast in response to this because you see that there is hurt and brokenness within Gilmore County and within your friends, and you're saying, Jesus, I don't know what else I can do except forgive my whole body, my whole life, everything for you, and align myself with fasting to worship you and in such a way where I give you everything. I'm fasting in response to this. And so, we're here. We're just today. That's pretty exciting. I just gave two talks in like 10 minutes. This is pretty good. So where we find ourselves, we're talking about community, this other practice of Jesus. And in truth, we're really just scratching the surface. We're not going to be able to do a deep dive. Hopefully we can come and do that another time. But today we're looking at the practice of community and seeing it lived out. And so I want you guys to understand two things before we jump back into Luke. And, and they are this, that the Bible was intentionally and purposefully written. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit coming down to people that really lived in this world, the prophets and these disciples and apostles, coming them and filling them with wisdom, filling them with his presence so that they could write the stories as they needed to be written. It wasn't, oh, this kind of makes a narrative sense, so I'm just going to put this story after this story after this story. No, it is this unified and beautiful work. The order of how a book is actually written is incredibly important like we're going to see today. And so hopefully after today, you're going to realize that, hey, maybe when I'm reading and meditating on Scripture, I need to actually look at the order of things. I need to look at how Mark or Matthew or Luke or John, they wrote their Gospels or any of the other authors of these 66 books that we call the Bible. And the second point that I want to bring to your attention is this, that you all are on the precipice of something incredible. You all have this amazing opportunity to build a new building but it will never be about those four hallowed walls. It'll be about the people that inhabit them. So let's dive into Scripture. Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 30. Like I said, we started off with this parable that Jesus brought, and we're going to be see it come to life with real people that lived on this earth. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And I love what Jesus is doing here. He's doing two things. First, he's saying, yes, God is my Father. He and I are one, so you are right in calling me good. But understand that you are not good. That's a harsh reality. That's a harsh truth that you and I are not good. The only reason why we can be good is because of the Holy Spirit living in us and through us. So I love this. Jesus is saying, yes, you're right. I am good because I, God the Father and Son, together, one person. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept my youth. I love this. Jesus is setting up this mic drop moment. Jesus is setting up this gut punch moment. He doesn't say, do you know the laws or the commandments? He says, you know the laws. You know the commandments. You've been doing them since you were a kid. He's like, I know I'm pretty amazing. I'm a pretty good dude, right? And Jesus is like, yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on, hold on, hold on. One second, one second, one second. Verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. 
and come follow me. Translated a different way, your money, your power, your family, your wealth, your inheritance, all these things that you're putting your safety in, give them all up for me. That's what's keeping you from loving me fully. Because the first point that I want to bring about today is this. Jesus doesn't want our head alone. He wants all of us. Jesus doesn't want our head alone. He wants all of us. Jesus is requiring everything of us. And so my question to you right now is, what are some of those things that are maybe keeping you from giving everything to Jesus? Is it money? Is it family? Is it kids? Is it your wife? Is it job? Is it a title? Is it image? What is keeping you from giving your all to Jesus and fully following him and living out these practices of Jesus? And now you're thinking, Paul, but some of those things you mentioned are, are pretty good. Family? Wife, kids, those are pretty good things. That's right. You know what else is a good thing? Money. Money's an incredible thing. It's going to allow you to build an amazing building for you all to reach your community like never before. But it's the love of money that is evil. It's when we start placing these good things on an altar, that's when things start to go sideways. When you start worshiping your marriage or even your kids and your wife and all those things, when you start putting those above God and into their rightful place, man, that's when things start to go sideways. God is asking us to give him everything. Let's continue on. Jesus, this is verse 24, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time in the age to come eternal life. A lot of us have made choices in this room to where we are married and have a wife and have a kid or kids and have a home. And so the Lord says, yes, I'm allowing you to be a steward of those things but never, ever, ever place those where they are an idol that you worship. I require everything of you if you want to follow me. That sounds heavy, and it is. That sounds hard, and it is, but Jesus is doing life with us. He's carrying that burden with us. And so we see the first part of this parable coming to life. As we talked about in Luke chapter 18, it was this religious leader saying, I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. Follow me. I've been fasting my entire lives. I'm tithing. I'm doing pretty awesome. But those sinners over there, oh, they're worthless. They're, they're, they're pitiful. So we're seeing this parable brought to life. But now we're going to look at a second story. And it's a story of, of someone who I believe, if you've been in church any time of your life, you've heard of this guy, you know this guy, you know the story. It's a story of Zacchaeus, and he was a wee little man, and he climbed up in, what kind of tree did Zacchaeus climb up in? A sycamore tree, that's right, you guys do know it, you know, and he was a wee little man, and, you know, he was running along this path to see what he could, what? See, that's right, you guys have heard this story before, you've sang the song. But when I was thinking about Jesus, I, I know you're leading me to talk about community. What, what do you want me to talk about community for? What scripture do you want me to reference? What is it? In a moment, the story of Zacchaeus popped in my head. 
And as I was studying this, I realized that, man, Lord, your word is so incredible and is so amazing. I see this parable and I see you bring it to life within the next few verses. And so we see the sinner beating his chest in the temple. This is the story of Zacchaeus. And what an incredible story, because this is a man who was living in this community and started to see people living in a different way. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Translation, he was a chief bad guy and was a turd. I mean, he was the worst of the worst. He was beating up through financial, like through taking more finances than he really needed to. He was oppressing his own people, his own Jewish nation. He was oppressing them. And he was giving it to the enemy, the Roman government, who was here trying to stop the Jewish people from growing, eating beyond where they really could. So Zacchaeus was this chief bad guy and working for the enemy. Verse 3, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was of small stature. I love the details the Bible adds for seemingly no reason. But so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. When I read this, I was blown away. It, it honestly didn't make sense. Jesus, he's built his whole life on being slow and methodical and present. Yet in this moment, he's using this Greek word, sputa, which means to hasten or to urge on. So Jesus, the one time in Scripture this word is coming out of his mouth, is in this moment. And as I'm seeing this and reading this, it realized that I have to pay attention. What is Jesus bringing about? What, what is Luke trying to tell me within the story? And it's a semi-simple message where Jesus is saying, Zacchaeus, run from your life of sin. Run from all that you were doing before. Come into my presence. Come into my community. Come into my peace. Come into my rest. Come into my love and live this slow, unhurried life and be present to those around you. Verse 6, So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Verse 7, And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. I mean, that verse sounds oddly familiar. It's almost like we read it at the very beginning. Oh, wait, that's right, we did. Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisees, who are the exact people who are grumbling about Jesus entertaining and seeing Zacchaeus, standing by himself, prayed thus. God... I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like Zacchaeus. Do you see it? Parable brought to life. These Pharisees in this community, I am so glad I'm not like these unjust, these adulterers, these filthy people. I'm so glad I'm not like Zacchaeus, that tax collector. Chapter 19, verse 8, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Like I said, Zacchaeus, he was a smart dude. He wasn't some idiot. He didn't just take a, a turn over here and be like, you know, I'd like to make a little bit more money and work for the enemy. 
he may have given his head to the scriptures and he knew them really well, like the back of his hand, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. He knew those really, really well. In fact, so much so that he's quoting them back to Jesus. Leviticus chapter six, verses one through five is what he's talking to Jesus about. He's saying, I know when the Lord told Moses about the law is that if I willing, you know, if I willfully and kind of know that I'm stealing from someone or even if I accidentally do it, once I realize that I've stolen, I need to give back to that person and I need to add a fourth to it. Zacchaeus knew the laws really, really well, just like the rich ruler. But there is a difference. Zacchaeus was living out exactly what we are supposed to be living out. He was restoring all things back to new. From the very beginning of time, from the Genesis account, we are called to restore everything back to new. And Zacchaeus is saying, Lord, I'm doing it. I'm restoring all things back to new to new. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I love this because Zacchaeus, in this moment, we realize and understand that he had never seen the person of Jesus face to face. Sure, he may have seen him going through his community, but the reason why he changed, the reason why he started to give his whole heart and his whole body to Jesus, to the law, was because of this because there was a people around him, a community of people around him living out the practices of Jesus so differently that he knew that he had to change. People were actually loving their neighbors. People were actually giving to the hurt, the broken, the lost, the lame. People were living differently, so much so that before Zacchaeus even met Jesus face to face, his life was forever and radically changed. And so the second and final point that I want to bring about this morning is this. That when a community of people live out the practices of Jesus, lives are changed. When a community of people live out the practices of Jesus, lives are changed. I started off by saying this. You guys are on the precipice of something amazing. God in his kindness has blessed you all with an incredible piece of land on top of a hill for an unbelievably good price. And then, all of a sudden, the world went to hell in a handbasket. COVID happened. Everything was topsy-turvy. Everything was messed up. Steve, in one of the messages leading up to this 21-day journey you guys have been on, was like, guys, I almost resigned. Because I didn't I didn't understand why I would lead a people that really believed and trusted that I was following the word of God, that I would lead them to spend a whole bunch of money on a piece of land that was never going to do anything except for gather rain. And the Lord is like, whoa, 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 hold your horses there. Hold your horses. And he started putting a vision within Steve and with other leaders that was bringing about this amazing building. And I can't wait to hear about all the things next Sunday, about how many hours were read of scripture and how many hours were prayed about. But guys, it's this amazing moment that you all are on this precipice of something amazing. But it's not about those four hallowed walls of the new building that you're going to be building. It's about those of you who will be entering that building and leaving that building. It's about the community that will enter that building, but you want to know something else? It's about people in your community that will never set foot through those doors. It's about your Zacchaeuses, whose lives will be changed by how you are living out the practices of Jesus. So for a moment, I want you guys to humor me. Let's close our eyes, and I want to bring about 
a couple visions here for what this new building will look like. Imagine you're driving up to the church, this new and incredible building. It looks immaculate, and you open the doors on a Friday night, and all of a sudden your face is hit with these delicious and amazing smells of this awesome and unbelievable, soulful, good food. You're hearing laughing in a corner. You're also hearing some sobbing, but it's not a sobbing of brokenness. It's of joy because these people are, that are there are realizing that they are no longer slave to these addictions. Where you find yourself is celebrate recovery. And you're seeing volunteers who are bringing their grandkids and their kids that are loving on these people who are doing everything to fight against these addictions. And you're seeing lives change and stories altered. And you know what? Now let's kind of shift our focus and envision something else. It's a random Tuesday night and you're, you're up at the church and you smell smoke, but it's not because the church is on fire. It's because there's a couple of fire pits in the back and there's kids that are roasting marshmallows and Stevens with the youth ministry. And they're you're having a great time and you see this little two-year-old running around and it's his son and he's getting to play with him and have a lot of fun and there's the name of Jesus isn't actually being spoken but it's just the fact that they're in a safe and inviting environment where youth are being loved on and Jesus's love is being poured out on them open your eyes those are just a few or just a couple I should say of the images that I could talk about and bring up but I have another question. What are some of the images of community that are being laid in your heart right now? And if there are none, I would challenge you to pray about that over this next week or two. Say, God, in between the now and the new building, how are you wanting me to join in your adventure and your journey to love those that are in my community? And maybe it's a something like as simple as what I, I did this past Friday. So there's uh, a book that I read every year, and I invite people, some, uh, some guys in my community, to read it with me. And it's the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. It's an incredible book. I would recommend that every single person in here read it. And so what we do is we meet over bourbon and barbecue. We met at my house, and we had a bonfire, and we talked about it. And it's really cool to see men talk about Jesus and talk about how they want to live a little bit differently so that they are more present to their families and that they're more present where they are. Or maybe it's something as simple as like my wife she's on a tennis team she's a captain of a tennis team and she's had the ability to form these relationships with at this point over 40 women and she doesn't necessarily say the name of Jesus but she is showing his love by building these strong relationships with these women and loving them and being from being with them in times of need and in times of hurt or maybe it's something that I do a handful of Fridays every year throughout the school year I go to my kids' schools and in the morning and I open up car doors for people and I greet kids and parents with a smile and invite them into this safe and welcoming place. I don't know what the dream or vision of community is for you, but I would challenge you to think about that because when a community of people live out the practices of Jesus, lives are changed. Stories are altered. And I want to land the plane with a quote from a book. The book is Sacred Cow, The Case for Better Meat. I realize, not a spiritual text. However, when you take this quote and put it to your lives today, it makes a whole lot of sense. In our increasingly disconnected and polarized society, love for neighbor has gone out the window in the fierce battle between us and the enemy, them. In our increasingly disconnected and polarized society, love for neighbor has gone out the window in the fierce battle between us and the enemy, them. We've seen this for thousands of generations with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
We've seen this over hundreds of years ago with the Christian crusades where people were brutally slaughtered and murdered in the name of love, in the name of Jesus. We've seen this less than 200 years ago with slavery. We still see it today with that as well. But it's right here, 2024, on our doorstep. Politics. Us versus them. My political party versus your political party. I don't know if you realize it yet, it's 2024 election year. And man, it's going to get nuts. We also see this, though, with, with folks that may not identify themselves as the gender that they were born with or that fall into the LGBTQ plus community. It's, hey, we're right, they're wrong. It's an us versus them. It's this polarized society. But I've got a question. What if we, as a community of believers, actually lived out the practices of Jesus in such a way where we brought, where we brought parables to life? Just like where there was these religious leaders saying, I'm so glad that I'm not like these unjust people, these tax collectors, the worst, the worst. What if we would live life in community where Stephen and his wife, they would get together with other couples and what if someone was like, I, I thought they were the youth pastor at the orchard. Why in the world would they be hanging out with that couple? Are you, I don't know if I want them around my, I, I don't know if I want them around my kids. What is this? I thought the orchard was a place where they believed in God. What if, as a community of people, we brought the parables to life that people would question what we're doing because we're finding ourselves exactly where God has intended us to be always. Because when a community of believers live out the practices of Jesus, lives are changed. And what does that mean? It means that we love every single person because they bear the image of their creator as if they were our own to the very end. We love them to and through the cross. So what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be a community of believers living out the practices of Jesus so that lives can be changed. Loving our neighbors, each and every single one as if they were our own to the very end.